Well, it's been a, it's been a joy to spend the weekend in the book of Leviticus, and we're going to uh, read again from there. We've been um, glimpsing something of the, the gospel richness uh, which there is in this book, the, the story that Leviticus is telling and the grace that it's displaying. And so we're continuing that this morning and this evening, reading this morning from Leviticus chapter 8. If you're using one of the, the Blue Church Bibles from the back there, it's page 86, I think, uh, in that Bible, Leviticus 8. Let's read and hear together God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash round his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod round him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes round their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water. And Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat, and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and the right thigh, and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf, 
and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Amen. Could you turn back with me, please, to Leviticus chapter 8. I'll pray. Our Father, our God, as we come to your word, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing in your sight this morning. We receive this word with joy and gratitude and faith. Bless us, we pray, therefore, in the name of your Son. Amen. As we read passages like Leviticus 8, particularly if you're someone who's new to church, new to the Bible, it may seem there is a huge gap between Larbert and Leviticus, that the world of priests and sacrifices and bloodshed it is a million miles away from our daily experience. And it can seem, therefore, that, that books like Leviticus and passages like the one that, that Andrew read to us have very little to say to us in our modern world. I hope if you've been here over the last 24 hours that, that you've begun to see that, that that's not the case, that actually this, this book is full of treasure for us. But, but as we begin and turn our attention to the, the priest, and particularly the high priest of Leviticus 8, I want to say to you that Larbert is actually full of priests. I don't know the, the town at all well. I drove around yesterday for the first time. I don't know the people. But I do know that Larbert is absolutely full of priests. Young people, you will have a priest. I don't know who they are, but you will. Almost certainly you won't call them a, a priest. I'm not talking here about a, a, a man who, who represents a particular religion. I'm not talking about a, a Roman Catholic priest. But you will have a priest. There will be people in your, your, your sphere at school, in your social group, people in your office if you're at work, people in your family who act essentially as priests. 
We, we can see perhaps that, that in some parts of the world today, or at some parts uh, of the world in history, at different times in history, speaking about priests and sacrifice would, would make sense. Uh, a missionary talking to a, a tribe, perhaps, who have a priest, a local village priest. We, we can see that perhaps to them Leviticus would make sense because we think they are religious. But, but we are secular. Our society out there in the world, in, in Scotland, doesn't have priests, but, but it does. We don't use the word, but it does. That the job of the priest in Leviticus in the way that God set up the world, in fact. The job of the priest is to bring the people to paradise. The job of the priest is to bring the people to paradise. The tabernacle was built in a way that that made it look a little bit like the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to go into the details on that again, We we thought about it on Friday night. But it is built to look a little bit like paradise. And the high priest in particular, the the chief priest, the one at the top of the triangle, as it were, he was the only one who was allowed to go back into the garden. Exodus finished with even Moses being driven out of the tabernacle as God came to live in the most holy place. And Leviticus begins... Leviticus begins with the Lord calling Moses and saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you, literally when any Adam, that the Hebrew word for man is Adam, when any Adam brings an offering, this is what he should do. We've got a garden in the wilderness, the tabernacle. And God says, I am going to allow an Adam back in. The first Adam was kicked out but there will be an Adam who comes back in. Someone is allowed into paradise. And it's the great high priest. Priests bring the people back into paradise. Why do I say that you have a priest or you have people who function as priests in your own friendship groups and networks? Well, let me ask you this question. What would make you happy? In in, in the depths of your heart, if Aladdin's genie was to pop up and say, I'll grant you just one wish, what would make you truly happy? Most of us will know the answer to that question immediately. For some of us, it's a small thing. We want to lose a few pounds. Weight, that is. (laughs) For others of us, we want to gain a few pounds, money. Uh, We want the promotion. Life would be good if she would just go out with me, if he would just propose. Whatever your dream is, whatever that secret longing is, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever that longing is, the chances are it rests in someone else's hands. Is that not the case? I I want love and romance. But for that dream to come true, I need someone else to ask me out or propose. He or she becomes a kind of priest figure, bringing the, the salvation that I long for. I want to lose a few pounds. And so I go to my personal trainer or my fitness coach. They become a kind of priest figure, bringing to me the dream that I seek. Someone in your life 
holds the key to happiness. When you start giving your life to all these small dreams. And Leviticus 8 is raising our eyes and saying there's something far greater, far greater than gaining wealth or losing weight or even gaining love and family, even health. Perhaps your dream is to be made better. And it's the doctor who holds the key. Something even greater than that, as Leviticus 8 points us to Christ. It was a long reading. It's a long ceremony. In essence, what is happening in Leviticus 8 is that the high priest in particular is being what you might call ordained. He is being commissioned for his work as the high priest of Israel. So, so first of all, I just want to walk, walk through what happens, not in immense detail, and some of it is confusing, but, but let's just walk through the ceremony. What happens? Well, in verses 1 to 4, the people are gathered. You see that? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, and he is going to be the high priest. Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, and verse 3, assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The church are gathered at the gateway to Eden, if you like. It's not a private ceremony, it's a public one. Aaron, who's going to be ordained, and all the people of God with him. And then three things happen to Aaron. He's washed, he's clothed, and he's anointed. So in verse 5, sorry, verse 6, Moses brings Aaron and his sons, and he washes them with water. Okay, he's washed first, and then he's clothed. All sorts of different items of clothing that we won't look at now. You'll cover them uh, when you come to them in Exodus in more detail. But he's washed. He has special clothes put on him. And then he's anointed. Verse 10 onwards. Moses takes the anointing oil. Uh, anointing. Uh, happened very simply when oil was poured uh, on the priest. In fact... The high priest was the anointed one. The high priest, uh, just a few chapters early in Leviticus 4, is the first one in the Bible who is called the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. The first time we get a direct reference to the Messiah, Leviticus 4, it's the high priest. He is the anointed one. If we spoke Greek, we'd call him the Christ. He is anointed, or messiahed, if you could turn it into a verb, or Christed. So he's washed, he's clothed, he's anointed with oil. But of course, Aaron is a sinner. Aaron is a big sinner. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so he needs to be cleansed. He's not a pure, clean, sinless human being who's got the right to walk into God's presence. Aaron is a sinner like you and like me. And so what happens? Well, there has to be a sacrifice for his sin. Before he can start bringing offerings for everybody else, his own sin needs atoning for. And so there is a series of offerings. Now, this evening, we're going to look at the first proper worship service in the history of Israel, really in the history of the Bible, in Leviticus 9, and then what happens next in Leviticus 10. So this evening, in many ways, will be the kind of climax of how all this fits together. But we get a foretaste here in Leviticus 8 at the ordination ceremony. Uh, First of all, in verse 14... There's a sin offering. Now, we haven't talked about this. This is taught in Leviticus 4. The sin offering, the bull of the sin offering, in in essence, is a a kind of cleansing offering. 
It's a way of dealing with particular sins. Over the last 24 hours, I've said a few times that in Leeds, when when we looked at the book of Leviticus, we we tried to do an alphabet for the children. So chapter 1 was the ascension offering. Chapter 2 was the bring a gift offering. Chapter 3 was the come and eat in peace offering. Chapter 4, which is this sin offering, we called the detergent offering. I was stretching a bit by now. D, detergent. Because it's all about cleansing, about blood being applied to make you clean. Aaron needs to be made clean. So in verses 14 through 17, this detergent, this sin offering, is all about cleansing Aaron. And then in verses 18 through 21, we get one of those offerings that we've looked at already this weekend, the burnt offering, chapter 1, what we call the ascension offering. The one that, if you like, brings him symbolically into God's presence. And then all the way through verses 22 to 29, there's a, there's a new offering, uh, actually a, pretty much a unique offering, uh, an ordination offering, uh, as it's called. It's a strange one. Do you see the lamb is killed and blood is daubed on Aaron. Verse 23, that the lamb is killed. It's a male sheep, a ram, a lamb. And Moses takes the blood and puts it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on his big toe. And then he puts it on the the right ears, the thumbs, the right hands, the big toes of the other priests too. What's going on? (laughs) Strange, isn't it? But I wonder if it rings some bells. A a male sheep, a lamb killed and blood painted on these people whose hands are then filled with unleavened bread in verse 26. Does that remind you of anything? A male lamb dying, blood being applied and unleavened bread. It would certainly remind Aaron and the Israelites of something because for them that something was just a few weeks earlier, the exodus. The Passover lamb, the lamb that died in place of the firstborn son, and then the blood was painted over the doorway of the Israelites' houses, wasn't it? As they ate their unleavened bread. I think what it's doing is tying together Aaron as the high priest with Israel as his people. In Exodus 19, which I don't think you've got to yet, God says that actually all of Israel are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. They've been called out of Egypt. They've been saved in order to be different, to live holy lives. Almost as it were to be go-betweens between the nations and God, to show the nations who don't know God what God is like. The whole nation is a priesthood in one sense, as they've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb, having eaten their unleavened bread and fled from slavery. Well, now Aaron, as the the chief priest of this people, goes through his own little mini Passover, as it were to establish him as, spiritually speaking, the leader of Israel. Uh, He then offers this wave offerings, it's called, in in verse 27. And honestly, there's so much debate as to what exactly is going on there. I I think, for what it's worth, I think what's going on is it's a way of Aaron saying to God, you have filled my hands. Moses puts the, the food in Aaron's hands, and he sort of lifts it up and down it seems, before the Lord, to say, look, you, Lord, have filled us. You, Lord, have equipped us for this work. One of the problems with the book of Leviticus, one of the difficulties reading it is, is you don't get an, a, a narrator butting in to say, by the way, this is what this sacrifice means. 
So just every now and again, some of the details are, to our fallen and finite minds, somewhat confusing. Not because there's a problem with Leviticus, but because there's a problem with us, or at least with me. So, so what has all this got to say to us? Okay, that's what happens, but, but so what? It speaks to us of three things I suggest to you this morning. First of all, this ordination of Aaron speaks to us of the grace of God, the grace of God. Who is being ordained here? Who is the high priest? Who has God chosen to come into his presence once a year on that great day of atonement? Who is allowed the privilege of symbolically entering heaven, entering back into the Garden of Eden? Aaron. What do we know about Aaron? What has Aaron done so far in the story? Remember, Leviticus happens really at the same time. It just follows straight on from the book of Exodus. They're still at Mount Sinai. What has Aaron just done? What is the last thing that Aaron has done before this, this ordination? Aaron, Moses' brother, whilst Moses was up the mountain receiving God's word and instructions for the tabernacle and God's law, Aaron, down the bottom, leads God's people in an idolatrous service. Remember? The golden calf? The people say, well, well Moses is gone. He, he's disappeared. He's 40 days up a mountain. He, Aaron, you take over. You make us some gods. Not scary, fiery, cloudy, invisible gods. Give us something tangible. Something like the gods of the Egyptians. Something real. Something we can see. And so Aaron makes a golden calf. And says, well, let, let's worship this as Yahweh. Aaron leads the rebellion of God's people, whilst God is speaking to Moses, his brother up the mountain, and yet God still ordains him as the great high priest. Is that not a huge encouragement? Time and again in the Bible, God's grace is shown in those he uses, even those he calls as leaders. Think of Peter. In some ways, the the chief of the apostles, the disciples. Peter, who denied Christ, abandoned him. Think of David, the great king of Israel, uh, who sees a woman bathing. And though he is married, and though she is married, arranges for her husband to be killed in battle and steals and sleeps with Bathsheba. On and on we could go throughout the Bible. On and on we could go throughout church history. We sung this morning, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. What did John Newton do before he came to, to ministry, before he wrote hymns like Amazing Grace? He was a slave trader, involved in that horrific transportation of people from Africa, captured and enslaved. And yet God's grace is such that he not only forgives them, but uses these men. Uh, you may be very conscious, some of you will be very conscious of, of huge sin in your past. A sin that perhaps others don't know of. A sin that you might just about have come to believe God has forgiven. But, but, but sin that you think bars you from ever being any use in God's kingdom. 
you may just cling on to the promise that in Christ our sins have been removed as far as the east from the west, but, but you've come to believe that, that you're essentially useless, crippled by this great sin. Be encouraged by Aaron, by David, by Peter, by, by Paul who was killing Christians before he became the great apostle. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And when God saves people, when God saves great sinners, even when he saved them and then they sin greatly, he's still able to forgive and use you. Now, it's probably worth saying there are times when if a man is ordained as an elder in the church and he does something particularly scandalous, then it may well be that from then onwards he cannot serve as an elder in office, as a minister. But that is not the same thing as to say that from then onwards he is utterly useless in God's kingdom. Because God is a God of grace. I hope that's come across in this book of Leviticus. The sacrifices ought to have shown us. The sacrifices are ultimately provided by God. They're not Moses' idea of how might we make God calm down a little bit of our sin. No, God provides the sacrifice. Uh, Have we understood this about the death of Christ, in fact? Let me ask you another question. Does God love you because of the sacrifice, or did he provide the sacrifice because he loves you? Let me ask it another way. Does God love you because Jesus died for you, or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? You ever thought about that? Does God love you because Jesus died for you? Or did Jesus die for you because God loves you? Let me tell you, it is the latter. It is not that God, the the Father, is, is angry and furious at us. Jesus, the nice one, the nice, vicious member of the Trinity, becomes man, comes down, dies for us. And therefore, now God the Father kind of has It is not that the Father is angry and the Son twists his arm into loving us. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Sometimes we, we fear, I, I, I think, we fear that, that sort of behind Jesus... God, but there is no God behind Jesus, no different God, no God who is angry, having his arm twisted by a son who is for us. God is a God of grace, and yes, the price had to be paid, but it was all a transaction of love. The ordination of Aaron speaks of God's grace. It speaks, therefore, too, and I hope we've seen this already, it speaks to us of Christ. Remember the the three main things that happened to Aaron? He was clothed, he was washed, and he was anointed. When Christ comes, the book of Hebrews calls Christ our great high priest. And Christ too was clothed and washed and anointed. Think of his baptism at the Jordan. Who arrives at the Jordan to be baptized? Well, the Son of God, who's not eternally been a man, He's eternally God, but not eternally man. So the Son of God clothes himself in our flesh. 
He becomes one of us. The Son of God, clothed in our flesh, comes to the River Jordan and is washed. He's baptized by John the Baptist, not because his sin needs dealing with. He has no sin. But rather, if you think about the picture, all those Israelite being baptized in the Jordan, symbolizing their, their sin being washed away, it's as if the sin is washed off them and onto Christ. His, his baptism is his commissioning, his ordination for ministry, if you like. And as he comes out of the water, what happens to him? He's anointed. The Spirit is poured on him. The voice comes from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. And the Spirit descends like a dove. That the gospel writers are showing us that Christ is the true high priest, clothed, washed, anointed, just like Aaron. And he is the one who is truly, therefore, able to carry us into God's presence. He is the one who is both going to be the sacrifice and the priest who makes the sacrifice. Christ is both. He fulfills the offerings of Leviticus, but also the priesthood of Leviticus. And that's why the book of Hebrews calls Christ the great high priest, the true Aaron, if you like. He enters not just a tent in a desert, but enters heaven on our behalf to present his blood shed to cleanse us. He carries not stones, however beautiful, but he carries his people, you and me, safely in. So when I spoke earlier about these other priests, priest-like figures in, in our lives, these other people who promise us they can deliver our dreams, or who we begin to think idolatrously can deliver true happiness to us. The girlfriend, the trainer, the doctor, the boss, the spouse, whoever it might be. They are but pitiful copies of the true high priest. Christ who can deliver us back into paradise, back into Eden. Christ who can bring us eternal life, eternal joy, eternal happiness, eternal cleansing from our sin. There are many things on earth that can make you happy for a while. Many good things. Lots of those things are good. Many of us could do with a few more pounds in the bank and a few less on the tummy. But they're short-term goals. What we need is Christ as our mediator, as our go-between. And he is the the one who determines your, your entire future. You must have a priest. To, to paraphrase uh, someone else's comment, hell is eternity in the presence of God without a priest. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a priest. Everyone in this room is going to spend eternity in the presence of God. But if you enter that presence without Christ as your priest, your mediator, your sacrifice, if it's not him who carries you in, if you're not clothed in his righteousness, then the Bible is very straight that we are facing eternity in God's presence with God angry at us and punishing us rather than delighting us and rejoicing in us. Jesus, the true high priest. And thirdly, and finally, much more briefly, this ordination of Aaron speaks of us, God's people. Speaks of God's people. We too are clothed and washed and anointed. 
the Old and the New Testament both refer to God's people as a royal priesthood. The book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, speaks of the church as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? Because you've been clothed. Not that Christians get special robes when they come to faith, but you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His life and death surround you, as it were. You've been washed clean by his blood and by the Holy Spirit who slowly is sanctifying you and transforming you into Christ's image. And you've been anointed, anointing, remember the the pouring of the oil in the Old Testament, always pointing forward to the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the New. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit dwelling within you. That's why we talk about the priesthood of all believers. Everyone in this room is a priest if you are a believer. Now, we don't believe in the the presbyteriate of all believers, if I can put it that way. It's not that everyone in this room is an elder in the church. There is still that office, but that office is not one of priesthood. They have their duties, some of which they have inherited from the priesthood of the Old Testament. But the elders here are not priests, because Christ is our great high priest, and all his people in him, washed, clothed, and anointed, are little mini-priests. And so we inherit from our forefathers, from Israel, from Aaron, that duty, that joy of being God's representatives on earth in Larbert. It is not just that God has made you priests so that you are fit for heaven, although that is true. But it is also the case that you have that priestly duty of proclaiming the goodness of God to the world around. That is the church's job. God has, in that sense, ordained the whole church. And he's made us fit for heaven and fit for use. It is a strange ceremony. And the gap between Leviticus and Larbert may look large. But Christ knits the two together. He knits Leviticus 8 through to Larbert 2018. If you're not yet his, come to him. There's no qualification needed. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will clothe you. And he will carry you safely into heaven. If you're tempted to go elsewhere and drift away from him, then realize that those other little priests, those little false paradises, are nothing. They are passing and fading. And instead rejoice that he has done everything. That you are written on his hands. You are bound to his heart, to his breastplate. And he has done everything to carry you safely home to heaven. Your body rests here for now. But in Christ, you are sat safe in the heavenly realms. And one day, one day, the great high priest, the great king, the great prophet, the great Messiah, the anointed one, will return, transform this earth, and gather us fully and finally into his kingdom. Heaven is an eternity in the presence of God with Christ, our great high priest. Let's pray.
Our Father God, we praise you that we do not stand alone before you. We praise you that you have provided a second Adam, a last Adam, a greater Aaron, who gathers us, his children, his brothers, who pays for their sin, who cleanses them with his spirit, who clothes them in his righteousness, and who transports us into paradise. Father, keep us close to him, we pray. And we long for the day when we sit at his wedding feast and rejoice for eternity in your presence. Father, bless your people, we pray in his name. Amen.